Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Thank you, Ben. Good job. And, and well done. So we, uh, we're going to be looking at Ben read from Genesis 1, uh, Psalm 1. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, same chapter we looked at last week. So if you are a person that follows along, very easy to find. First page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We'll read it in a minute. But I want to do exactly what Ben just suggested. Take a couple seconds and let's decompress and pause. Um, get 20 seconds of rest. And then we will pay attention to God's word. So let's pray. God, thank you for uh, young men and young women like Ben who are part of our youth group. Thank you for Andy who leads them. Thank you, God, for the privilege that we have as a church of investing in the lives of young people. Thank you, God, for the chance we have to have young people invest in us. God, I thank you that in your kingdom, you are a God who has an interest in the oldest among us and the youngest among us. Thank you, God, that there's no age in which you say, well, these people aren't important or they have nothing to offer or there's no reason that they matter anymore. But that every human being, regardless of how big, how tall, what color, whatever gifts he or she has, whatever gifts they don't have, whatever flaws, whatever sicknesses, whatever handicaps, God, we are made to be in your image and you adore us. God, I thank you for the fact that even in our brokenness, you have made a way for us to be redeemed to live in your presence and in your kingdom, not only today, but forever. And thank you for the promise, the hope that we have in that. God, I want to pray today that as we uh, think more about what it means to be made in your image, I pray, God, that you'll be directing our thoughts, that through your spirit, you'll help us to think about what it is that you want us to think about. And I pray also that you will be shaping and forming our character, transforming us to be the people you want us to be. God, for every teacher, there's this burden to be faithful to what it is that we're teaching. And so, God, I want to pray that if in any way I get off track or say something that isn't right, I pray that through your spirit that I can trust, well, I know I can trust that you will help all of us to not be influenced incorrectly. But I am also grateful, so glad that in my own life and the lives of so many other people, you take truth 
and you are shaping us. I pray, God, that you'll do that again this morning, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of my eighth grade year, and any of you guys remember, were you in Allentown long enough to remember when Trexler was a junior high school? Trexler Junior High School. So at the end of my eighth grade year, um, at what was then Trexler Junior High School in Allentown, my family, my dad was transferred, and so as a family, we moved to Lancaster. Now, eventually, Lancaster became home. It's what I still call home, Um, but it took a while. It took a long while. And so when I eventually um, got around to starting my ninth grade year at what was then Lincoln Junior High School, just up the hill from where we were living, I had all kinds of uncomfortable moments when I just did not feel like I belonged. Um, I didn't feel at home. I felt odd and kind of out of place like I didn't fit, and I didn't quite know how to fit. And if you've ever been through that, you know that one of the things a person does in a situation like that is you, you kind of watch what everybody else is doing, and you mimic what they're doing. You try to act like they're acting, right? You know, the when in Rome phrase. You try to fit in. So, um, in Lancaster, uh, I signed up for the football team, but I was a week late in signing up. So, when I got to the locker room for my first day of practice, everybody else had been there for a week. They already had their uniforms, and I was desperately trying to fit in. I got fitted with the leftovers, because I was a week late, and there were no practice jerseys left that day. So I had to take the white t-shirt that I was wearing underneath my dress shirt and I had to stretch my white t-shirt over my shoulder pads and it clearly did not fit. On the way down to the practice field as we were leaving the locker rooms as a team, me trying to fit in, a booming voice yelled out from the locker room, stopping everybody in our tracks. You, the coach yelled, new guy. I don't know how they dressed where you came from, but on this team, we tuck in our shirts. Think you can do that? You ever try to tuck in a t-shirt that is already stretched too tight over your shoulder pads? All eyes were on the new guy who just didn't quite fit. We walked down to the practice field and gathered in front of the coach, and everybody was kneeling. However, I didn't notice they were kneeling because I had walked down with the coach, taking time to try to tuck in my T-shirt. So when I got there with the coach, I was standing right in front, and when he got there, everybody knelt, but I didn't know it. So for a couple seconds, the whole coaching staff just stood there staring at me until the coach said, new guy, do you know what it means to take a knee? Do you think you can do it? All eyes, once again, were on the new guy who just didn't quite fit in. 
That's pretty much the way it went in those first couple months of school. We had a gym class one time in the wrestling room, and the teacher said, the beginning of the class, he said, we're going to play crab soccer today. Do any of you know what crab soccer is? I had no idea. But I noticed that everybody else in the classroom was getting down in kind of a crab position, and so... I did too, thinking, this is a really odd way to start a soccer game. The whistle blew, the ball got kicked, and I immediately popped up to my feet and went running after the ball until I froze and noticed that everybody else was still in the crab position. There was this terrible moment of silence as the whole class, along with the teacher, looked at this lone dweeb who was standing up, having no idea how to play this game, until they all bust out in laughter at the new guy who just didn't quite fit. That's what it is like to not feel at home in one's world. And I think it's epidemic. I think it's epidemic. Do you ever feel alone? Like you just don't quite fit. If you haven't noticed that we human beings do not know how to live very well together, at home in our world. Well, you're just not paying attention. We are lost. We are. We're ill at ease. We're not quite home. Wondering about this crazy human race and why we just don't quite Well, it wasn't always this way. There was a time when we human beings knew who we were, and we were at home in this world. So we're going to actually return this morning to an ancient passage of Scripture that's filled with God's wisdom about human beings who are at home in their world. I'm going to read actually the exact same sentences that we read last week from Genesis chapter 1, only we're going to add a few more. And then we'll unpack them together. From Genesis chapter 1, this is actually that great literary account of creation. And I'm going to pick up reading in day 6. Genesis 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, 
I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the whole earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. Now, I have no idea if you remember um, what we talked about last week. Maybe you weren't here, live, or watching Maybe you had already fallen asleep. So I want to give a quick review of what we talked about last week when we defined what it means to be made in God's image. In the ancient world, we said last week that the idea of an image doesn't mean what it means for us in our day. An image in the ancient world isn't something that you can create so that people think of you a certain way, in the same way that a politician crafts an image for himself. In the ancient world, an image means a picture of who you really are. Your image is a picture of your true character, who you are. And to be made in God's image, to be given God's image, means that we are made to be like God. We're made to share in God's character. Now, when we read that last week, what we did not talk about, and what maybe you noticed last week when we read it, and maybe you noticed it this morning, is that this image that we are made in, this image of God that we bear, this image actually defines for us what is our place in this world. Having been made in God's image, God then said, and let them reign. Now, I think this is really important to understand what this means and what it does not mean. To bear God's image does not mean that we automatically are meant to reign over creation. Some people misunderstand this connection when God says, let us make man in our image and let them reign. Some people think that it's kind of the same thing, that to be made in God's image means that we automatically reign. And it does not. To bear the image of God is not a definition for being able to reign over creation. And this is really important, so stick with me on this, even though, you know, it's slightly confusing. If God had said let us make humans to be king, then to reign would be a definition of who we are. Because to be a king is to have a kingdom. To be a king is to reign. That's a definition of what it means to be king. But it's not what God said, and it's not what God, said, what God did. We're made in God's image. We're made to be like God in character. 
And because God gave us his character, he then chooses to give us the responsibility to reign because we have his character. So God's expectation is that because we possess his image, his character, we will reign just as he would reign. Does that make any sense at all? Understand that? To reign does not automatically follow from being made in his image. God chooses to let us reign because we're made in his image. We reign because God expects us to oversee this earth in his character, in the same way that he would reign. Now, this means, of course, that thinking about God's creation means that we're intended to think about God's creation in the same way that God thinks about his creation. And we're intended to act in his creation in the same way that God would act in his creation. So, for example, if you were reading Genesis 1, you'd probably very quickly notice that there's this theme in Genesis chapter 1. Every day, the first five days of creation, at the end of the, the, the day of creating, five times, God will kind of stand back and examine what it is he's done on that first day. And five times the scripture will say that when God looks at what he did on that day, God says, this is good. This is good. Good carries with it the idea of beautiful or stunning or right in the sense that this is the way things should be. Now, at the end of the sixth day, the day that I read for you, the final day in which God is actually doing the business of creating, God steps back and Scripture says that he looked at everything he'd made, not just that day's work, but he examined everything that he'd made closely. He looks at the rightness of it all. He looks at how it all fits together with human beings in it. And God says, this is all very good, very beautiful. It couldn't be more right. Now, obviously, if, you, if anybody makes something that when you look at it, you say, this is beautiful, this is good, this is right, then you'd want to keep it that way, right? Your goal would be to maintain its beauty and its rightness and its correctness. It's really interesting. If you read the book of Job, chapters 38 and 39 and 40 and 41, where you have in the book of Job, you have this, this grand poem of a man who is struggling with the presence of evil. God in those chapters, when God speaks to Job, God actually uses his creation to make a point with Job. And when you read what God is saying in those chapters about his creation, you have this sense that God has immense pride in his creation and that he finds it to be a place of enormous beauty and he says to Job, Job have you ever seen 
A horse, for example, he says. Have you ever seen a horse? And it's almost as if God is saying to Job, Job, if I give you a head start and give you a pile of dirt, could you even make a horse, Job, like I did? And it's as if God is saying, Job, look at this world. Look at its beauty and its rightness. And there's this sense that God has this appropriate pride in what he did. You can actually kind of detect God's joy in creation when you read those descriptions. Then there's a time um, when Jesus was talking about worry to his disciples. And he said something to his disciples. He said this. He said, have you ever seen any of those little sparrows that flit around? If God cares about a little sparrow and he can keep track of each one and he knows when that sparrow falls from the sky, how much more will God care about you? And usually when we read that verse, we focus on the last phrase, the how much more phrase, and we forget the lesson in the first half that God has an enormous investment and an interest in even the little sparrows. And he knows each one. And he knows when it falls from the sky. So God has an enormous interest and joy in his creation. So if we are to reign with God's character, any thought that we can exploit creation, including other human beings, or misuse creation, or ruin things, or break it because we're careless, or take it for granted, or not appreciate it, any thought that we can do that is obviously a corruption of what God has intended. It isn't God's plan. So to reign is not to tyrannize. It's to reign with God's character. In fact, to be really precise, to reign in Genesis 1 means that we are to reign in place of God. We reign as God's substitute, as God's steward. In fact, that's one way that you can define. If you want to know what is our place in the world, that's a definition that we reign in this world as God's steward. There's a trilogy of books. Uh, it's a trilogy of movies as well. It's called The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. Anybody ever read it? Um, great series of books. I've seen the movie, whatever. If you've read it or seen the books or seen the movie, you know that there's a kingdom in Tolkien's world it's the kingdom called Gondor. And Gondor is ruled by a steward. He's, Gondor is ruled by a steward in the kingdom of Gondor because Gondor is waiting for its rightful king to be revealed. In the book and in the movie, the steward of Gondor is a man named Denethor. Denethor is this steward, and even though as a steward he has this certain strength and determination and he has managed to resist 
the advance of evil in his kingdom, Denethor is a failed steward. He's a man in whom all joy has leaked out. So if you remember the movie or the books, maybe you remember the scene of Denethor's relentless gluttony, eating without tasting, wine dripping from his chin, looking like blood, his misshapen pride. And in the end, his failure to be a good steward means that he will take his own life and almost take the life of his son. Tolkien, in an interview one time, explained the failure of Denethor as a steward. And Tolkien used this simple phrase, Denethor was a man who considers Gondor his. He considers the kingdom his. Tolkien, who was a man of great faith, devout faith, he was writing, I think, about what he knew to be true of human beings, that maybe we forget our place in this world. Maybe we forget that the world is not ours. Other people aren't ours to use for our pleasure. Things get broken, people get broken when we don't remember our place in this world. People get abused, relationships go foul. You could actually say that all of our ethics, all of our values, all of our system of knowing the difference between right and wrong, it starts with this truth. The world isn't ours. We're stewards of this world. We're meant to reign in it, in place of God, with his character. And I think in a very brilliant way, Tolkien is helping to understand why it is that so many of us don't know our place and why we're lost and why we break things and why we ruin things, why we misuse them including our own selves. Because we think it's ours. And the image of God has been broken. Like looking at a mirror that's broken and twisted and we no longer like what we see. In the end, we don't know our place in the world. Look around at what human beings are doing. Do you think the human race is overflowing with joy in who we are? Is there an epidemic of people who are reigning with the character of God? We don't know our place in the world. The mirror's broken, and we don't like what we see. Have any of you ever heard of um, the Battle of Britain? The Battle of Britain was uh, entirely an air battle fought with planes, uh, fought between roughly July 1940 and June 1941, obviously during World War II, before the U.S. entered the war, the end of 41. 
The Battle of Britain was an attempt by Germany to bomb England into submission and surrender. Every day, Germany would send bombers over England, day and night, destroying England's cities. Hundreds and hundreds of bombers at a time, coming in waves, sometimes lasting for eight hours or more of bombing, day or night. England, during the Battle of Britain, England was outplaned and outgunned. However, England's fighter pilots went up every day. Every day trying to stop these German bombers. And although the battle was very lopsided in Germany's favor, the English pilots simply wouldn't quit. They would get shot down over the English Channel. They'd bail out. They'd be rescued by a boat, sometimes an English fisherman's boat. And a day later, these same fighter pilots would be getting back in their planes, fighting again. Sometimes pilots were shot down three, four, five, or six times, and they wouldn't quit. They were relentless in going back to their planes. By the end of the Battle of Britain, Germany had lost almost 2,000 bombers. And they decided to quit and take their bombers elsewhere. England won the Battle of Britain. And several German historians call it the turning point of World War II. When this Battle of Britain was over, speaking of the English fighter plane pilots, Winston Churchill famously said, Never in the history of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. The English fighter pilots were heroes in Britain. One historian wrote this, the population treated them as gods. All eyes turned their way when they walked the streets in their decorated uniforms. Young boys ran up to touch them and to stare at them at close range. All the girls envied those girls who were fortunate enough to walk beside a young man in Air Force Blue. It is impossible to exaggerate the adoration Londoners gave to those brave RAF pilots. with one exception. There was a giant problem. I read about this in a book by Dr. Paul Brandt, who, Dr. Brandt was a surgery student, learning surgery in London during this time, the Battle of Britain. Later, as an aside, Dr. Brandt would spend his life as a surgeon working among the poorest of the world, providing surgery for lepers. But during the Battle of Britain, Dr. Brandt was living in London learning surgery, and he saw up close what often went wrong. One of England's fighter planes, the one called the Hurricane, had a huge design flaw. A fuel line ran very close to the cockpit. 
And whenever that fuel lane, fuel line, or the engine or the fuel tank would be hit, that fuel line would explode in flames. It was an instant inferno just inches from the cockpit. And although the fighter pilot was able to pull a lever and eject, in the two or three seconds that it took to eject from the plane, a fighter pilot's whole face would be burned off. Hair, nose, eyelids, cheeks, lips. And dozens and dozens and dozens of these fighter pilots ended up in the hospital where Dr. Brandt was learning the skills of a surgeon, all of them with their heads and faces wrapped entirely in gauze like mummies. The surgeons would go to work starting the process of skin grafts and reconstructions that usually would take 30 to 40 surgeries per patient. And yet surprisingly, Dr. Brandt wrote that the morale in this hospital was surprisingly high. These pilots were proud of their service to their country. The nurses did their best to be cheerful. So in spite of the enormous pain and the endless surgeries, the hospital, he said, was a joyful place. Until, he wrote, each pilot was nearing the end of his recovery and was soon to go home. And then a change began. He said that normally these pilots used mirrors to gauge the impact of their surgeries. They would look to see how much work was being done on their faces. But eventually, when these men started to realize that that young, handsome face was never coming back, the mirror became an enemy. And they would look in these mirrors and see that their face was forever nothing more than a scar. And they became sullen and angry and depressed. Dr. Brandt wrote about a conversation that he had with these pilots and about these mirrors. And these pilots said, you know, at first we looked gladly at these mirrors, measuring progress, seeing how a piece of skin taken from our thighs became an eyelid. But as we came closer to leaving, he said, the mirror became our enemy. Because now we looked at the mirror to see how am I going to look to everyone else? And what they saw was not a hero, but a freak. Would girlfriends still want to marry that face? Would anyone give that face a job? Often these pilots would take experimental trips outside to gauge the response of people, and they came back saying, Adults look away, children stare, they make faces. Some of them say cruel things in innocent honesty. 
Psychologists were brought in to try to help these pilots, and these psychologists would follow the pilots as they went home. And it became obvious over the course of several years that these pilots could be divided into two groups with a very obvious line dividing the two groups. It was dramatic. One, there were those pilots whose girlfriends and wives and friends could not accept these new faces. Friends and lovers who once idolized these young pilots silently drifted away, filed for divorce, wrote Dear John letters, or just disappeared. The mirror was broken. The image was ruined. And many of these former heroes lived shattered lives, refusing to leave their homes. If they could get jobs at all, they would get a job that allowed them to stay in their home, hidden, away from eyes, broken men, forever losing their place in this world. The mirror was broken. On the other hand, there were those fighter pilots whose wives and girlfriends and friends stuck by them. Many in this group went on to enjoy great success, professionals, teachers, community leaders. One of them Dr. Brandt knew well was a young man named Peter Foster, who would eventually become a leader in England. Peter admitted to Dr. Brandt that he was very fortunate. His girlfriend assured him that nothing had changed except a few millimeters of skin. She loved him, she said, and not a few folds of skin. They got married just before Peter left the hospital, and Dr. Brandt was there. And Peter explained that when other adults turned their eyes away from his face, or when children made cruel jokes, Peter said, I would turn my eyes to my wife. She became my mirror. She gave me a new image of myself. A mirror made whole. There's a psalm that expresses this exactly, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you've set in place, what is mere man that you should even think of us? And yet, you have made us just a little lower than yourself, and you have crowned us with glory and honor. You have given us charge over everything you have made. The mirror made whole. We're often broken people, aren't we? All of us carry scars. Most of those scars we cannot see, but they're scars nevertheless. 
Healing comes from the amazing grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. But the mirror, the image. Oh Lord, when I look at the night sky, what is man? And yet, you have made us to reign. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website of horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.